Grab your bulletins. We're going to walk, work through the notes. Um, so before we, uh, before we left, we did a, one part of this series on the Word and why the Word's important. And really, it's the two eyes that we're looking at. We looked at inspiration, that the Bible is our authority because it's inspired by God. And what that means is that God directed the writers of the Scripture to include what He wanted to be included. Today, we're going to look at this other idea of inerrancy. Augustine in um, AD 430 said this. He said his own writings, and you may have read some writings of Augustine. His confessions have been a bestseller for years. He said of his own writings, and all the writings since the apostolic times may contain errors. But here's what he says. The authoritative canonical books of the Old and New Testaments are different. If we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book must be mistaken, but either the manuscript is faulty or the translation is wrong or you have not understood. So what he says is that it's not that the Bible has made a mistake or that the Bible is in error. It's that our understanding of it or perhaps the translation is not correct. John Wesley says this, If there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. So John Wesley says, in the scripture, in the Bibles that you have, that if there's one error in there, there might as well be a thousand. Because if there's one error, that means it didn't come from the God of truth. It wasn't inspired by the God of truth. Now, thoughts like this marked most of Christianity up through the first 1,800 years of Christianity. People looked at the Bible, and they said, yes, it was truth. It was God's Word. Until around the year 1860, when Darwin's work attacked a, 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 sparked an attack on the book of Genesis. And so there became this sharp division then between Christian liberalism and Christian conservatism. Christian liberalism denied the supernatural in all things. In other words, it said there's no such thing as miracles. There's no such thing as the supernatural. And there's no such thing as the supernatural gift of God's word. Around 1920, then, in a reaction to this liberalism, there's this new orthodoxy that arose, uh, restored belief in the supernatural. However, it says, yeah, we believe in the supernatural, but we don't believe in the supernatural origin of the Bible. And so this conservatism then of the 20th century that we know took shape as sometimes called fundamentalism or evangelicalism. Around 1950 said, wait a minute, the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by God. We do believe in miracles. We do believe that God had his, had his hand in the gift of the Scripture. And so, of the many issues that were debated, and this is not a long time ago, this is in the 1900s, of the many issues that were debated were the nature of the Bible. Is it from God, or is it just some book that was put together? Even today, we have pressures from postmodernism, relativism and redefinitions of terms, we can't take anything for granted. So here's what the other I inerrancy means. I put this little definition on your notes so we understand what it is. All scripture, as first written by the authors themselves, produced under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is without error when taken in the original meaning of its authors. So in other words, when Paul wrote the book of Colossians in Greek... As he wrote it, that book of Colossians, there, there are no errors in that as he wrote it. There are no errors in the original intent that, that Paul had. The Bible tells the truth in history, in logic, 
and in geography. Really, the Bible is the only book that does that. There are not many other sacred books that you can look at and say, you know, this book is true because it has an accurate representation about geography, for example. You see in the news all the time, archaeology. They come up with new finds. And what do they find? Oh, it does, it does confirm that the Bible is true. It does confirm that what the Bible says is true. So you might be asking yourself, well, why does this even matter? It still does matter very much. Denying inerrancy, in other words, denying that the Bible is true, we are affirming that there are errors in the Bible somewhere. When I deny that the Bible is true, what I'm saying is there are some falsities in there that some statements are true and some statements are false. The problem is we don't know which ones. And so denying inerrancy means that there are some falsehoods in God's word. Donald McGavern, he tells an experience he had. He was a missionary in India, and he was teaching a men's Sunday school class. He said the men, uh, he says, were mostly workers in the mission press with average education of a 7th or 8th grade. He says a turning point in his own uh, pilgrimage took place one Sunday morning when he asked a class of about 15 or 20 men, he asked them this question. When you read the biblical passage, just as we are studying this morning, what is the first question you ask? And one of the most intelligent workers in the mission press immediately replied, what is there in this passage that we cannot believe? That was his first response. What he meant was that when we read a passage about Jesus walking on water, we of course know that he could not have done that, so we can't believe that. So here were these these educated mission workers that Donald McGavern asked the question, and the very first question they asked about Scripture is, what is here I can't believe? So Donald says, I've concluded, I said, I've never been as confronted as bluntly with what the liberal position means to ordinary Christians in numerous instances. It shocked me, and I began at that moment to feel that it could not be the truth. He said, I began to feel my way toward convictions concerning the Bible as infallible revelation. It was God's word. It was entirely dependable. It was the rule of faith and practice for every true Christian. So why does it matter? Here's why it matters. It provides a solid foundation for truth and sound doctrine. When we deny inerrancy, and all inerrancy means is without errors. When we say the Bible is without errors, and when we say, when we deny that, and we say, well, there are errors in there, we can no longer say something is true just because it's in the Bible. Instead, every individual statement of Scripture needs to be then judged for its truth or falsehood based on some other experience. Instead of saying, oh, it's true because God said it was true, oh, it's true because it's in the Bible, when I say, well, you know, the Bible contains some errors, so then I'm going to have to start using some other things. Well, what are those other things? Maybe reason. Maybe my intellect, maybe experience, or maybe some mystical sense of being guided by the Holy Spirit, some feeling or some emotion that goes along with it. But when we say the Bible is inerrant, what it means is it provides a solid foundation for truth and sound doctrine. It provides an agreed-upon authority for truth and sound doctrine. We all come to it, regardless of culture, country, or time in history. The message is there for all people, and so it does matter. Because it provides us a place to stand on. I joked a couple weeks ago about why do we use God's word? Why not just pull out the Reader's Digest? I mean, there's some inspiring stories in there. You've cried sometimes when you've read those stories. You've laughed when you've read the laughter is the best medicine. 
You've done all those things, right? Why? Because, because its source does not come from God. Its source is not in the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to record God's word. And so we use the scripture because it is God-breathed. It's the only book that is God-breathed. Every book that you ever buy on CBD other than the Bible or on Amazon.com besides the Bible is man-breathed. The Bible is God-breathed. It comes from God himself. And so therefore it provides a solid foundation for sound doctrine and truth. I can see life for how it really is. I can see life for how God describes it. I want to give you two things of what happens when we deny it. In other words, if we deny that the Bible is truth and we say there are errors in there somewhere, there's two things that can happen. The first one is this. It leaves us at the mercy of subjectivity. So we come and we say, well, the Bible isn't inerrant. There are errors in there, or there are untruths in there somewhere. And so what happens is, we, it's all subjective. Each one of us has to decide which biblical teachings we will accept and which ones we will reject based on something inside of us. Our own feelings, our desires, our own experiences, or our own subjective judgments. And so when I say, well, there are errors in the Bible, and we say, well, how do you decide? Well, it's just up to me to decide. It's very subjective. A few weeks ago, the Pope got himself in trouble with some of those in the Catholic Church because he changed the Lord's Prayer. Have you heard about this? It was a big controversy. He said, he spoke, and and the the little phrase, uh, lead us not into temptation, he said, argues that it portrays God in a false light. A father does not lead us into temptation. A father helps you get up immediately. And so what he has done is, it says, instead of lead us not into temptation, to do not let us fall into temptation. So they changed, he changed the Lord's Prayer. And the French have done this for years, have modified the Lord's Prayer. It caused an uproar. Um, People responded to the Pope like they do the president. If they like him, they'll believe everything he says. And if they don't like him, they won't believe anything he says. And so the truth is somewhere in the middle. He's both right and wrong. The truth is, it's not lead us into temptation. The truth is, it's do not lead us into trials. That's really what it means. Jesus is saying, pray because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in A.D. 70. So you pray that you're not led into this time of trial. In the book of James, the word for trial and temptation is the same. And so the, so the Pope is right and he's wrong. It needs change. He just changed it the wrong way. Well, what happens then? Because we're appealing to this subjective thing. Instead of just allowing the word to speak for what the word says, we now have to appeal to this other authority. And so we have this sense of confusion. It's just a sense of subjectivity. And we find that in people's responses. And people's responses are, well, I'm just not going to believe it. I don't care what you say. I, I have learned this since I was a kid, and I'm not changing. Well, what's your authority for that? Well, it's just my subjectivity. It's because I like it that way. And so when we say that God's word has errors, it just leaves us subjectivity. I decide for myself. If I like it, I'll accept it. And if I don't like it, I will reject it. Or maybe you say, let's just apply human reason. Let's, let's apply reason. And what happens is we accept everything in the Bible as authoritative and normative until we come across a passage we can accept. You see, we love the passages on love, on mercy, and on grace. We just love those. 
But if it's up to me to decide which ones I'm going to accept and which ones I'm going to reject, I'm going to accept the ones on love, mercy, and grace, but not so much the passages on God's sexual ethics. Eh. You see, the Bible isn't really true in those areas. The Bible isn't authoritative in those areas. I love what the Bible says about love. I don't love what the Bible says about sex. And so I'm going to reject one and accept the other. See what happens? We live in this place of subjectivity. That's probably the number one reason that people deny the truth, that people deny that God's word is true. If you think about our culture and the conversation of our culture, is, it's because they, did not, they say, well, God's word is not true because it relates to something in the area of sexual ethics. I don't like what God's word says on one man, one woman in a covenant marriage for life, and so I'm going to reject it. What happens is subjective. I don't like what God says about this. I don't like what he says about that. I don't like what the Bible says about this. And so I'm going to reject it. Instead of saying, yes, the Bible is true, it's inerrant, which means it's authoritative for my life, and I need to yield to it, the subjectivity means I'm going to make it yield to me and my preferences. We have to do the hard job of understanding the one right meaning of Scripture. I know this is hard in our postmodern world where everything is up for redefinition. I can redefine terms. I can redefine words. What, something can mean something for you, and it can mean something entirely different for me, but that cannot happen with God's Word. It means one thing. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, prayed for what? Unity. Of his believers. And he, I'm sure he's weeping over the 30,000 denominations in Christianity today. Do you know why there's so many? Because this group says this is the one right meaning. This group says this is the one right meaning. We're right and we're right. You're wrong and you're wrong. Listen, you both can't be right. There cannot be many right meanings on a passage of Scripture. There is one right meaning, and it's our job to do the hard work to discover what that meaning is. Because the loss of one right meaning and the subjectivity leads us then to relativism. There's no such thing then as truth in the general sense. There's no more objective, absolute truth. There's no more sound doctrine. There's no more place to stand in order to establish some ideas as true and some ideas as false. I know this is unpopular in our postmodern world. To talk about things as being true and to talk about things as being false and to talk about such things as absolute truth. If the Bible is not the inerrant word of God, listen, we have no place to stand. We just don't. There is no firm foundation on which we can take a stand for any belief. We all simply believe what we want to believe. We make it up as we go. That's the hallmarks of our postmodern world. Just make it up as you go. Archimedes says, give me a place to stand and I can move the world. Francis Beckwith said this, with relativism, we have our feet firmly planted in midair. So what do we do? We say, well... The Bible is not necessarily authoritative. The Bible isn't really truth. The Bible really isn't binding on my life. So I'm just going to make it up. What's true for you is true for you. But I'm going to apply this to my life. And I can't tell you what's right. And you can't tell me what's wrong. And we're all just kind of living our lives happy and free. The problem is we have no place to stand. I had a Bible college professor. And he said this. um, He said, "Most, most small groups are exercises in polled ignorance. A poll is a survey. 
He says, here's what most small groups are. We read a passage of scripture. What do you think? 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 And we get seven opinions about what the passage of scripture is. And all of them may be wrong. One of them may be right. But who knows? We all leave feeling good because we all express our opinion about what a passage of scripture means. Now listen, there are a million applications to a passage of scripture. There's one right meaning, but there's a million applications. So what the meaning is, is one thing, but how I apply it to my life is another thing. When the Bible says forgive as Jesus forgave you, that's the one right meaning. What does that mean? That means you forgive people. You don't hold grudges. You don't have an unforgiving spirit. The one right meaning is you let people off the hook because you forgive them. That's it. Well, how does that apply? Well, it applies a million different ways to a million different people in a million circumstances. For some, it's their spouses. For some, it's their parents. For some, it's their co-workers. For some, it's their kids. For some, it's their neighbors. For some, it's themselves. You see, all the applications are different, but the meaning is only one. So what happens is with relativism, we say, well, here's what this means over here. Oh, is this what you think it means? Listen, it's just polled ignorance. We can both be wrong, and we go on our lives thinking like we have the truth. So what is lost? Are these true or not? Can we stand on them? There are great doctrinal affirmations that are lost if we deny the inerrancy of Scripture. I listed a couple texts for you. Let's just walk through them real briefly. Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can stand on the fact that the universe is a purposeful creation of a creator, according to Genesis 1.1. That's where we stand. The Bible is true, and it says this is what happened. This is how we got here. Or we can stand in midair, and we can say, well, 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 well. I'm just the result of time and chance with no inherent dignity being created in God's image. There is no God who is supporting our very existence today. See what happens is God's word says we were created in his image. He created us. There's a purposeful creator behind this universe. Relativism says, well, that's okay for you to believe it, but I'm going to believe something else. But we only have one place to land as a firm foundation. It changes everything if we understand that we are here by the purposeful will of a creator. How about Isaiah 53, 5? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Listen, if that is true, I can stand on the fact that Jesus is my substitute. All the wrongs I've done have what? Have been placed on him. But if I say, well, God's word contains some errors, maybe this verse is wrong as well. Maybe, just maybe, I'm not forgiven. Just maybe everything that I've ever done is still held against me. Maybe I need to work it off myself. I need to be a better person. I need to be, uh, work harder and work faster and work stronger. You see what happens? I can say, yes, Isaiah 53, 5 is true. Jesus took our punishment on him. That's a firm place to stand. Or I can deny and I can say, well, there are some errors in the Bible. Maybe that isn't true. I have no hope. I have no forgiveness. How about John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I can stand on the truth. So the Bible, in its inerrancy, makes facts that are true. The fact is that is true is this, is that Jesus, we learn later in John 1, is the Word. The Word is eternal. So I stand on this eternal Word, Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Or I can say, well, you know, the Bible contains some errors. 
And some of the things it says are not true. So why wouldn't John 1.1 be one of those? Maybe Jesus is not God. Maybe he was just a creation. Maybe he was just a good moral teacher. Maybe he was a philosopher. Maybe he was just a really nice guy. See, what happens when I deny that the Bible, what it says is true, I'm standing in midair. How about John 3.16? For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, the Bible, when it makes that assertion, is it true? Yes. Inerrancy says the Bible makes a statement and it is true. Well, you know, there's some errors in the Bible. Some of the things it says are not true. Well, why won't John 3.16 be one of them? It's all relative. So that if it's not true... I am hanging in mid-air. I have no assurance of forgiveness. I have no assurance that there's even eternal life. I have no assurance that God even gave his one and only son. You see what happens? When we start to decide for ourselves what is true and what is not true, why wouldn't these verses be untrue as well? It's because we like them. We like these verses. So we're going to say, well, yes, it's true. Now we're back to subjectivity and relativism. Just because I like it doesn't mean it's true. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's false. If God says it, it's true. And that's where we stand. Romans 3, chapter 21. Romans 3, 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I can stand on the truth that what God's word says is, We are all messed up. How do I explain the world and all the craziness in the world? Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The Bible makes an assertion, and it's true, and we see that in the world. But it also says that we are saved. There's this righteousness that comes through faith. It's in God's word. It's a true statement about the reality of life. Well, you know, there's some errors in the Bible. Not everything it says is true. Well, why wouldn't Romans 3, 21 and 20 to 23 be false as well? Why would we accept other things as being true and say there's some falsely? Why wouldn't this be false as well? How do you know? Well, I just know. Yeah, but how do you know? No. Well, I just feel like it's true. See what happens? We're back to relativism and subjectivity again. It's true because God says it's true. That's what we affirm when we say the Bible is inherent. In other words, I can stand on the truth that my sins are fully forgiven. I don't have to try harder. I just fully trust. I know that I'm hanging in midair if I say, well, I'm not really sure if my sins are forgiven. I'm I'm not really sure that people are sinful. We hear that all the time. You know, people are basically good. Listen, people are not basically good. The Bible says we are sinful and we have stinking, rotten hearts. And without the regeneration that comes through the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ and submitting our lives to him, there's no hope for us. People are not basically good. We're all messed up. We are basically bad people who do some good things once in a while. That's what we are. But how do we know that? Because that's what the Bible affirms. The Bible says that is true because we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. You see, what happens is all those great doctrines, all those great teachings that we often take for granted, if we say, well, there's some errors in the Bible, why are, why are not your beloved verses wrong as well? You see, we can't 
pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. It's all from God. Maybe I just don't understand it correctly. Maybe I just don't have an understanding of what God's saying. That's okay. But God said it, and what he says, he affirms, and he affirms that it is true because he is the one who says it. You see, we need some certainty in life. We really do. You ever watch the news? It's kind of funny. Uh, this was on a couple weeks ago, right before we left. The stock market was doing this crazy thing. Do you know the stock market is not a stock market? It's people buying stocks and selling stocks. Like, there are people behind that. And people are crazy. And people get nervous. And people are greedy. And people are worrisome. And so whenever something happens, you know, um, a butterfly can die halfway around the world and people start getting nervous and the stock market starts going up and down. I just laugh because what's behind that? It's people and their neuroses. Because we want something stable. And that's always the byline. People are looking for stability. The Federal Reserve might raise interest rates. The Federal Reserve might lower interest rates. The Federal Reserve chairman just went to the bathroom. And the stock market, up and down. Why? Because we need some firm place to stand. It's always the result. is Well, people are just looking for some security. People are just looking for some, some assurance. Listen, we are never going to find it in anything of the world. We're never going to find it in the stock market. We're never going to find it uh, 15 miles from here in Washington, D.C. We're never going to find it. We are never going to find stability in this life. You know why? Because this life is passing away. The only firm foundation we are receiving, the Bible says, an unshakable kingdom. This right now is shakable. This right now is temporary. This right now is not permanent, but because of the way that we're created, we are looking for some stability. And so we will seek it in all kinds of places. And what we do is we eventually create idols out of things to find our stability. So whether it's the stock market, whether it's government, whether it's a relationship, whether it's our talents and skills and abilities, we're all looking for some place to stand. But you know what? God's word provides that. The truth of God's word provides the firm place to stand. Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8 says this. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Isaiah says, we are like the grass. We are like the flowers in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The Bible says we are like grass. We are like flowers. We have this beautiful plant before we left on vacation. And I had this great idea. I want to sit it out in the yard so that when it rains, this thing will survive. Y'all didn't get any rain for two weeks. What's the matter with you? The thing was, it was all hanging over. I don't think it's going to survive. Bible says I'm like that. I'm that plant. Eventually one day, I'm going to wither over and die. But Isaiah goes on and he says this. The grass withers. You know the hot sun? You know that grass that you've been cursing because it's been growing so fast because all the rain? One of these days you're going to be complaining because it's brown and crunchy. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. That's the assurance that we have. And how do we know that? It's because the word of God is true. I cannot stand on something that's false. I only can stand on something that is true. The pew that you're sitting on and the floor that that pew is attached to, these are true. Why are they true? Because it's real. 
It's something that actually exists. It's something that is that you can rest on. It is actually true, right? That's what truth is. Truth is what corresponds to reality. And God's word is the truth. It corresponds to reality. We wither and fade. In this life, we can hold on to something that stands forever, and that's the word of God. And it's only possible if it isn't changing, if it's not subjective, or it's not, it's not relative. It, we, we can only stand on that when it is firm. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Isn't that great news? God's word is firm. Here's why. I can trust God's word for my life. If God's word is not true, if there are errors in God's word, or there are untruths in God's word, then I can't trust it. I can't base my life on it. I better go find some other way to find meaning for my life than God's word. But God's word, God's word is true. It tells us how things really are, but it also tells us what the solution is. Humans are sinners. It's not that we are ignorant and are uneducated. It's not that we haven't evolved enough. The root of all of our conditions is sin. The solution is not better education, more government, combating climate change. The solution is a savior to rescue us from our sins. You may have seen this quote. It's been around for a while. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. How do you say that word? Economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a Savior. How do we know what's true? Because of God's Word. Within an errant Bible, we have a place to stand. We have a firm ground under our feet, and we have no reason to doubt or apologize for our convictions. It makes us old-fashioned. So be it. Jeremiah 6.16 says this. The Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask where the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, and walk in it. Jeremiah says, You look for the ancient paths, and you walk in them, and you will find rest for your souls. And then Jeremiah says, But you said we will not walk in it. Isn't that the dilemma of our day? Everything we think needs reinvented, it needs to be remade, it needs to be redefined, it needs to be renewed, because we don't want to be ignorant, and we don't want to be out of date, and we don't want to just be old fuddy-duddies. But listen, God's word is true. It's the ancient path, and God says you walk in that way. Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-seven. look at the verse on your notes. They are not just idle words for you, this is God's word. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. John 20, 31 says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Oxford Dictionary, in 2016, selected post-truth as its word of the year. They annually select a word that captures the culture's current mood and preoccupations. Post-truth means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We live in a post-truth world. It doesn't matter what happened. What matters is how I feel about what happened. 
and what I feel about what happened may not correspond to what just happened, but that's okay because you can't tell me that I'm wrong. We live in a post-truth culture where emotion and feeling and narrative and story have taken over. Listen, there is no such thing as my truth or your truth. There is only the truth. And we live in a world where this is accepted. We live in a world where post-truth is now the way that we operate. And what it, all it means is it's how I feel about a situation. Listen, there is truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. It doesn't matter how I feel about the situation. My job is to know the truth of the situation. Raw emotion dominates the megaphones of protest. Everybody's angry. Everybody's protesting. And what are they yelling? It's how they feel about situations. It's not about what happens. It's not about actual, actual reality. It's just here's how I feel. Fake news allowed agendas to advance regardless of and often contrary to the truth. Ironically, those who are most vehemently opposed to fake news are the ones that are spreading the fake news. You know, the, 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 the one who's the loudest is usually the one who's the culprit. Facts often seem to be a problem to get around rather than useful tools. Well, I know this is what happened, but I don't want to acknowledge that, so how do I get around that? If the Bible is not inerrant... If the assertions the Bible make are not true, it's just fake news. And it's not good news at all. It is unreliable. It is untrue. It is not the source of life for us. If the Bible is not inerrant, it is just simply not the good news. God's word is the good news. It is the truth. It helps us determine which is which. It helps us determine fake news and the good news. To claim that all roads lead to God is not only illogical, it's disrespectful. In our current culture, when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through the... You know, those are dangerous words in our world today. How dare you say Jesus is the only way? How dare you say that Jesus is the truth? How dare you say that, you bigot? But we say that all roads lead to God. It is disrespectful to another person's belief. If we don't acknowledge the fundamental differences between religions, we end up disrespecting thousands of years of each religion's traditions and developments. When I say to someone, your religion is just like mine, I'm disrespecting them and their beliefs. I'm saying everything you've ever held dear doesn't matter because we're the same anyway. Every religious system has two elements in common. One is this. The world is not as it should be, and it needs fixed. If you, look, if you dig down in every religious system, you will find this. The world is broken, and it needs fixed. Now, where you find the difference is what's the solution to how it needs fixed. Some religions will say, well, you just need to deny yourself. Just kind of find that place in your mind where you're united with the one great big cosmic mind of the universe. Some religious systems say you need to do penance and walk and do all this paths to get there. But listen, Christianity is different. What does it say? It says the solution is a person. It's Jesus. Jesus didn't claim to be my way and my truth and my life. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. 
The exclusive claims of Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins are not some secret password that we get into the kingdom, but it's the humble actions of a most high God who sent his son as a payment for our sin, for some lowly wretch like me. That's the truth of God's word. Listen, I know we live in a culture where everything is pulling against us. From our time in Taiwan, one of the things that I so appreciated is that Christians know who they are. I can't just be like the culture and be like everybody around me and be like everything that's going on because those are contrary to God's word. And so I think it would be a good idea for us to pray for some wholehearted persecution in the United States. Maybe for us to be illegal to meet like this. Maybe for us who are Christians to get fired from our jobs, lose our houses, not be able to get loans. Do you think God's church would grow? Yes. You talk to those people in Taiwan who are missionaries into China, and God's church is flourishing. Why? Because they know the truth. They will die to have a Bible. One of the tours that we went through, we were in Hualien. And there's a little Presbyterian church, and there's a cave down behind the Presbyterian church. In the Japanese occupation of Taiwan during World War II, there was a woman who had gone to Bible training, and she came down to Walian to teach the good news of Jesus. But it was illegal to speak the name of Jesus, and it was illegal to be a Christian. And she was a little lady, I mean, a very small lady. And what they would do is they would meet in a cave, and she would teach about Jesus. And when the guards would start coming by, someone would throw her into a rice sack and throw her over their shoulder and walk off like they're carrying a sack of rice for fear of her life. And that church grew. And there are Christians in that area now because of this woman's sacrifice. There are Christians in that area now because of this woman was not afraid to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm going to give all for him. We're so comfortable. It's hard to tell Christians from non-Christians in our culture. We look the same. We talk the same. Our behaviors are the same. We watch the same things on TV. We watch the same things on our computers. We, nothing is really different. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And I don't want you to be swayed by culture. I don't care what culture says. I don't care if culture says your idea is just as good as my idea. No, one of us is wrong and one of us is right. There is a truth to be had. Don't allow the deception of the world to seep in. God's word is true. And its, it's, it's statements and its affirmations are true. And I can have life because I know it is true. Would you stand on God's word today? Would you have just that, ask God to say, Lord, have I bought into the thinking of the world? Have I viewed your word just like the world does? That I say, well, I'm going to accept the parts I like and reject the parts I don't like. I'm going to accept all the things that are great and wonderful and the things I don't understand. I'm going to reject wholeheartedly, out of hand and say, Lord, I don't believe it. Listen, as believers, we don't have that choice. As believers, God says, you trust my word and my son is the truth or you don't. You just can't take some parts of it, not the other parts of it. Because the parts that you accept, how do you know they're correct? Because I feel like it. Because I like it. God says, no, I want you to take my word and all that it is. 
It accurately describes life. It accurately describes us. It accurately describes the solution, which is Jesus. Would you please stand and we're going to pray.